All right, hello everybody, and welcome to the Ibis World podcast. Once again, this is Kieran Newton. I'm an editor here at Ibis World, and here with me today is Taylor Palmer. He is a lead analyst here, and he has been interviewed by the LA Times and the Wall Street Journal, and today, me. Hi, Taylor. Wow, well, thank you so much for having me, and I'm happy to put you on that list as well. Oh, thank you. I, it's an illustrious list to be a part of. So uh, last week in one of our media pieces, you talked about some product disruptions that didn't end up working. And part of the reason that we we're talking about this is that Warby Parker has a new app coming out. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Yeah, absolutely. So Warby Parker right now is testing out an app that allows you to get an eye exam right on your smartphones. So at this point, it is only available in certain states and for people that have apps and have purchased from Warby Parker currently. Mm -hmm. So you have to already be a customer there, and it's only available in certain markets. But what it's going to allow you to do ostensibly is cut out one of the major hurdles to buying a pair of glasses. Sure, getting a new prescription, right? Yeah, exactly. So instead of either A, having to go to the doctor to either pick up a copy of your old prescription or B, update it from maybe something that hasn't been redone in over a year or so, now you can just do it right on your phone and go into the Warby Parker store with that prescription or better yet, go right to their website, save it to your account and purchase on the go. This sounds like science fiction to me to a certain extent um absolutely beyond the realm of, of possibility but if they're putting money behind it you know they probably think that it's going to work taylor what do you think is this going to pan out well honestly a lot of people thought that the idea of purchasing a pair of eyeglasses on the internet was preposterous about five years ago sure you bet so they already have some experience in offering a service to people that they don't think that they want or can use and making it successful right Unfortunately, there are a lot more use cases of products like this actually failing. So right now, the deck seems pretty stacked against Warby Parker. Well, let's take a look at some of those, just because this is part of what the piece that you just wrote was about. But also, it is an interesting way of looking at the hurdles that are facing Warby Parker. First, I'd like to look briefly at Google+, which was, of course, Google's failed entree into the world of social networking. And like Warby Parker, you know, already established, huge company. This was still something that did not end up working for them. Can you tell me a little bit about what kind of happened with Google Plus? Sure. Yeah, Google Plus, I think the fact that you even had to say what it was is a real indication <laughs> that it hasn't really hit on the zeitgeist the way that they had anticipated it doing so. Yeah, usually you don't need to define a social media network for casual listeners. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Had you said Facebook, we wouldn't have had to say, oh, well, it's a social networking platform. But yeah, Google Plus was, was launched by Google as their attempt to compete in the social networking sites industry. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that's super interesting and, and pretty unique to the social networking sites industry at large is that user bases are sort of self-perpetuating. Right. So in order to really break through in this industry, you have to have a large and engaged user base in order to get more users. It's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy kind yeah, of thing. It's, it's the whole, uh, how can I get a job if I don't have experience? How can I get experience if I don't get a job? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, so it's like that, but in terms of industry success. And, you know, Google is, is sort of omnipresent in our economy as it is today. Mm -hmm. And just the sort of day-to-day -day workings. So with all of those established products, that huge integration into our lives, why didn't Google Plus add to that list? What, what kept it from making the leap? 
Well, honestly, the daily active user counts just never got where they expected. Mm. And in April of 2015, it was noted that there were 2.2 billion users on Google. On just Google products in general? On Google in general. Right. That whittled down to just 111 million active users on Google+. So that's, what, uh, under 5% of their user base? Yeah, it's a pretty small proportion of their user base was active on it. And that number cut down to 6.7 million users that have had 50 posts ever. <laughs> so, so the people that were using it and visiting the site on a regular basis, one of the things that is a metric by which these social networking platforms are looking at their success rates is, is how active and engaged people are. So sure, it's, absolutely. It, it's not just user counts. It's how many people are using it on a regular basis. Right, sure. So is it just that it... It wasn't doing enough to distinguish itself from the other things. There was nothing about it to draw people to it. I think you're absolutely right. I think one of the things that made it so hard for Google Plus to actually gain some market share in this industry is that it was operating as a broad-based social mm -hmm. networking system. And I think one of the reasons that it didn't work is that you already had two operators that had a real stranglehold on that industry at large. Sure. Facebook, Facebook. and Twitter. Yep, yeah. Facebook and Twitter. <laughs> See, we, I knew which ones you were going for, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and what Google Plus was, was planning to do was tap into the fact that they already had this enormous user base. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that Google Plus was faced with at that time as well is some of the other operators were recognizing that there was some saturation mm -hmm. in these broad-based social networking sites. They were going towards niches. Exactly. So what was actually working at the time, what was propelling the industry and the new innovation and the new users was coming mm -hmm. in in these really niche markets. Right. And this can be really specifically looked at into three separate companies. Mm -hmm. WhatsApp, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Sure. So at the time, Instagram was, was a pretty powerful upstart but they were an upstart still yeah and absolutely. you could see daily active user counts and post totals and average posts per user rising at this pretty high level because they were focusing on what was sort of a curated visual experience specifically right so by focusing on posting pictures they were offering something different than a traditional facebook poster a traditional twitter post sure they they condensed the the essence of the platform down to just one thing and then did it better than anybody else yeah absolutely and how successful they were at it was recognized almost immediately and they were acquired by facebook in what was a pretty pretty large coup in that industry and the other two that you were discussing, of course, LinkedIn mm -hmm. did a, a similar niche kind of thing with a very professional sense. Yeah. And they were in turn acquired as well. Yeah. Microsoft, another another one of these large companies that is sort of able to leverage a user base mm -hmm. instead of going in the broad based way that Google did. They went to something very niche and very specific. And LinkedIn has actually grown its market share in the industry just about every year since that acquisition. And of course, uh, WhatsApp, the very popular tiny chat app that was also acquired by Facebook. Yeah, it was. Facebook has made a pretty big effort in this industry to acquire smaller companies in order to bolster their market share with these niche apps. And Ibis World data shows that between 2011 and 2017, Market share in this industry between Facebook and Twitter, as opposed to the entire social networking sites industry at large, mm -hmm. has grown from 60.1% to 71.2%. 
I feel like the acquisition strategy is very much keyed into what you were talking about earlier about needing users to get more by incorporating both sides. They make both sides more profitable. Yeah, definitely. And with Google trying to come into this industry and failing, what it really did is it highlighted that that was the strategy for success in this industry at the time. Absolutely. But to be fair to Google, you know, Google has had a few other failed projects. Some might bump that up from few to many. Moonshots. Uh, yeah, moonshots. <laughs> um, but, you know, the failure of Google Plus did not sink them. No. You've said already that Warby Parker's new app, there's a lot of reasons that it potentially won't work. If it doesn't, do you think that that is something that will sink Warby Parker on the whole? Sure. Or just it'll be something that they cast aside and, and move on to something new? Sure. I think one of the things that we can link there in terms of similarity is uh, not only user base, but the failed product being an add-on to what is already considered a core part of people's lives. Right, so, sure. So Warby Parker also benefits from that in that they already have a pretty substantial user base. They have a market niche carved out for themselves mm -hmm. in terms of offering these low-priced, pretty highly stylized frames. So even if this optometry app doesn't necessarily pan out similar to google plus mm -hmm. they can still go back to that core operating standard and continue to succeed in the way that they have in the past right and that's a huge leg up for them i think in a way that a lot of new disruptors don't have that base to fall back on uh, and i'd love to kind of look at one of those who didn't have that base and kind of flamed out pretty spectacularly and i'm i'm referring to juicero uh who <laughs> yeah yeah the, the the chuckles are incoming they were pretty juicero had it rough juicero had it rough in the media cycle can you tell us a little bit about the company and what they were trying to do so the juicero has gotten a fair amount of of uh publicity positive and negative uh it was it was sort of something that came in with a lot of buzz mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of that buzz was sort of it was hard to deduce whether the joke was on juicero or whether people with were laughing with, sure. with juicero absolutely uh, so what the juicero was marketed as it was marketed as the high-end keurig for juice so it was an at-home juicer it was a machine and you would purchase these packets the machine, when it first came out, was a $700 selling price. Up I remember to that. A huge price tag. Yeah, definitely. It's a, about three quarters of a month's rent in New York City. So, <laughs> Depending on where. Yeah, for sure. But it's, <laughs> it's, it's a hefty chunk of change. And the packets themselves were, were $7. So they had these proprietary packets similar to how Keurig used to have. Mm -hmm. And you would put the packets inside of the juicer and it would... I, I man, squeeze I would, them. Yeah, I wish that there was a better way to say it. it would it would juice them. It's it squeezed them really hard. And I remember the the big criticism, the huge story that was breaking is mm -hmm. you can juice it basically just as well by squeezing it instead <laughs> of instead of buying the seven hundred dollar machine. But of course, you could not buy the seven dollar juice packets without first purchasing the seven hundred dollar machine. And so it, it kind of became this huge sort of this laughing stock of. There was a whole lot of articles that linked to this one piece by Ben Einstein of Bolt, who called it, and I quote, the poster child for Silicon Valley excess. He, he took the whole thing apart and found that it was 
just every piece was crafted to perfection. They, they spared no expense, but sparing no expense is not always the best business practice. That expense gets passed down to the consumers. Absolutely. So one of the things that a lot of experts in the field agree on is that that machine was very certainly over-engineered. Mm-hmm. And this created a pretty high cost for any consumer to get in on this. Right. So one of the things that was really happening in the juice and smoothies bar industry at the time was they were trying to reach out to the average consumer and get in on these healthy eating trends. Ibis World data shows that the healthy eating index grew and annualized uh, 0.2% over the five years to 2017, which is just indicating that people were definitely trying to make their diets a little healthier. And, and one of the ways that people were choosing to do that was by juice. Sure, high-end juices, the the whole cleanse trend that's mm-hmm. that's been happening, and they were trying to capitalize on a lower price point yes. kind of thing. And I, I feel as though, you know, Juicero definitely indicated to them that they had the right idea for going for the more average consumer rather yes. than the more high-end. Exactly. And what happened actually with Juicero is they recently bumped on the price of the machine from $700 to $400 and have been issuing refunds to people that purchase the machine. So they're also making an attempt to push toward that average consumer, but the juice and smoothies bar industry has just done it so much better. So you have this large competitor coming in, this established but also growing competitor in the juice and smoothies bar industry, and Juicero thought that it was going to be able to leverage a higher-end market Mm -hmm. and actually take market share away from these juice and smoothie bars. Mm Mm-hmm. What Juice and Smoothie Bars learned was that was absolutely not the case. And they actually corrected based on what was happening with Juicero. So Interesting. Okay. So a lot of these Juice and Smoothie Bars, instead of having these more expensive baseline juices, began offering what you'll see at every Jamba Juice in the country right now. You get a lower price smoothie to start. And if you want to have these add-ons... Mm-hmm infusions or, or boosts or things like that bee pollen for example oh wow yeah if Didn't you want yeah if you want to put stuff in your smoothie or in your juice you're more than welcome to but what that signals to consumers is all sorts of people can come here and enjoy this product and capitalize on these trends that are happening broad scale so it's sort of you could say the opposite of what was happening with Google Plus is they were trying to reach out to a niche market when what was booming was actually the broad scale. Sure, and it actually ended up, rather than disrupting that industry, rather than taking that industry down, it mm-hmm. ended up teaching that industry quite a bit and enabled it to grow its its revenue. Yeah, it, it, it grew its revenue and also uh, enterprises ended up jumping up as well. So when Juicero hit the market in 2013, and when this buzz for, for their startup funding started to grow, mm-hmm. we actually saw a decrease in enterprise activity in the industry. So in 2014 and 15, enterprise mm-hmm. figures dropped by 0.4% and 1% respectively. So Juicero did effectively scare them, but that threat ended up kind of fizzling out. Exactly. And the second you saw that that wasn't necessarily going to take hold in the market the way that people thought, those enterprise figures actually ended up growing. Interesting. Okay. Do you think... I feel as though Warby Parker isn't going to have these same sorts of problems. You've already said that they focus on the bargain but stylized glasses frames market. Uh, They're definitely not over-engineering. Do you think that these problems are going to to plague this new product of theirs or are their problems going to be different i think that this actually is a really nice use case 
of Warby Parker operating within the industry, similar to how the juice and smoothie bars actually were, and not necessarily the Juicero itself. So okay. Warby Parker is in this really advantageous situation in the industry mm-hmm. where they can provide a counterpart to some of these more expensive brands. So right now, okay, sure. Right now, Luxottica is the largest player in the eyeglasses and also the sunglasses manufacturing industries. Mm-hmm. And it's an international conglomerate and it owns all sorts of the, the licensing for all of these larger brands like Prada and all right sure so all the designer frames and stuff exactly and warby parker is offering a jamba juice to the luxotica juicero i feel like the problems that warby parker is going to face are going to be much more similar to a different startup one called theranos that you have been telling me some very interesting things about um this was an a blood app what was (laughs) that's Perhaps that's a bit reductive, but that's a very good way for me to remember it. (laughs) Uh, So Theranos is a company that offered blood testing services. Blood testing services. So they operated within the diagnostic and medical laboratories industry. Okay. And Theranos, their promise was that instead of relying on entire vials of blood for each test run in a laboratory that they could run up to 30 tests with a single drop of blood and that single drop was something that you could get out of yourself at home uh yeah you would still have to send it into their laboratories gotcha but because the they could run these tests on a single drop of blood what they could do is combine these tests and cut out some of the cost of running multiple tests at a time sure and just kind of streamlining the process of going to these laboratories and Mm -hmm. and having a whole bunch of your blood taken out of your arm and condensing it down and using it from there yeah and what that allowed them to do is showcase their services at a very low price something that the industry had really never seen before. Mm -hmm. So you could run a diabetes test for maybe 50% of of what industry average was or even less. And you could also package that with other tests as well. Sure. So what they were doing was reaching out, telling healthcare providers that instead of going to these more established companies, they could leverage this startup and they can cut major costs for not only the hospitals themselves, but also for, for individuals and consumers. Well, it sounds appetizing for these companies. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened? What? Why didn't it work? Oh, yeah. I mean, it certainly was appetizing. Theranos earned up to a $9 billion valuation at its height. That's huge. Which is, yeah, it's an enormous, enormous amount of money. startup, that's massive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that is actually near zero right now. So the net worth of the company is near zero. And essentially what happened is Theranos got caught up in a number of scandals regarding whether or not the technology that they were selling actually worked. So they just simply weren't able to prove that they were able to run all of these tests from a single drop exactly they were doing these tests and we found out eventually through some regulatory means that they weren't using a lot of their own technology to run some of these tests so what was being marketed as tests done through this revolutionary system was actually being done at sort of the same way that it has in previous years and theranos was saying that they were using their proprietary technologies 
that's not a great lie for the future of your company. No, it turned out to be pretty detrimental. Uh, there's been a lot of hubbub about Theranos mm-hmm. and them not being able to point to specific data sets mm-hmm. based on their own proprietary technologies sort of made it hard for them to really convince companies to stick with them after after the scandals came out. Sure, absolutely. Any sort of groundbreaking technology like that, I, I feel like the, the efficacy of it has to be the main selling point, mm-hmm. uh, has to be the, the basis of your argument. Um, do you see this as a challenge that might face Warby Parker's new technology? I would say that this is the closest corollary for sure. Because when you're working with any sort of health-related or any sort of like medical technology, mm-hmm. you're falling under the purview of quite a few regulatory associations. Sure. So right now, Warby Parker has to sell the exact same thing that Theranos did, is that their technology works. Right. A, what they're doing falls under the purview of the legal standards that we have for these industries. Sure. And B that they do it as well or better than competitors in the industry. Sure, that's just competitive advantage kind of thing. The second step above it actually working. Yeah, exactly. You have to prove that getting an eye exam on this smartphone app is as good as going to a doctor, having them like sit down with you and administer a traditional optometrist eye exam. And Warby Parker is kind of couching this a little bit. In a lot of the materials they put out about this app, they say you still should go to an optometrist for regular eye exams, mm. saying making sure that people know that this test doesn't check for things like glaucoma. Sure, absolutely. All of the actual health or disease-related parts of going to get an eye exam mm. are things that this app isn't designed to do. This app is designed to help sell glasses, I would assume. Yeah, and what that's doing is is it's trying to steal away market share in the optometrist industry from specifically those people that are coming in for nothing but a vision exam. I would assume that there's some some advocacy groups representing optometrists that are not particularly pleased by Warby Parker's efforts. Uh, yeah, I would say there's pretty much uniform distaste for what they're doing in in the advocacy fields and in these lobbying groups. So people are pretty actively trying to make sure that what Warby Parker is doing is not going to replace optometrists. And what Warby Parker is arguing is that right now they are on a path to be able to do so. And right now they feel that their technology is up to snuff. Well, in a sense, right? Like not not entirely. There are still reasons to go see an optometrist. Absolutely. I feel like the already the uh, scope of their claims, especially given those disclaimers that they're saying, things like that, is already smaller than those of Theranos saying, oh, you don't need to go get blood tests at all, ever. Just use us. Um, Warby Parker seems to be making a more modest claim that they might actually be able to back up. Yeah, they're essentially saying at this point, we understand that optometrists are something that people need and it's a Mm -hmm. vital medical service for for those that have vision problems but not everything needs to be done by them we can approximate some of those services and what we can do is we can put it into a really convenient really easy package so that consumers can get rid of some of the hurdles between buying these glasses but at the top of this show you said that you didn't think that this was going to pan out so Besides the things that we've already talked about in terms of these other companies and, and what Warby Parker can learn from them, sure. 
what is it about it? Do you just think that the tech just isn't there? I think that the tech could be there. I think that right now the reason that I'm skeptical mm-hmm. of this being a market success is that there's no precursor for this. It's it's entirely uncharted territory, yeah. any sort of app-based healthcare thing like this. Yeah, for sure. Telehealth services, uh, we've made a lot of advancements in it. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people gaining access to medical advice and medical consultations that might otherwise not have had that opportunity. Sure. But to this point, getting a prescription mm-hmm. for an eye exam is similar to getting a prescription for, for any other drug. You have to go see a doctor. You have to have that signature. You mm-hmm. have to see the doctor. And you have to get this approval and this regulatory approval through someone that is board certified. Right. So this will require some serious regulatory changes to even allow Warby Parker to do this unless they are somehow able to certify their app as an optometrist, which probably is not going to be the case. It's harder, for Mm -hmm. sure. Sure. Okay, well, these are some interesting challenges, and I guess we'll just have to see. Uh, (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. we'll have to keep an eye on it. All right, well, I think that's an... Once the puns start coming out, I think that's an excellent time (laughs) to end the show. Uh, Taylor Palmer, thank you so much for uh, giving us a look at these disruptors that didn't work. And thanks so much for having me. Once again, I've been Kieran Newton. This has been the Ibis World Podcast, and this is us signing off. We'll see you next week.